My guest today is Jared Michaud. Met him through a Twitter campaign that I've been doing to try to get my audiobook out to more listeners. Had a good conversation back and forth and invited him to join me for a conversation on his marketing. Jared may be like a lot of you. He has not done a ton of marketing that has led to a ton of book sales, but we have some fun conversation on things that he has tried that have worked as well as an alternative to the publishing, self-publishing, vanity publishing kind of matrix that a lot of us think through in our early books. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jared Michaud. This is TRBM Ammo Edition. If you're a published author and want to make a living writing books and selling them to avid readers, you've come to the right place. There's simply no program that's more successful at driving readers towards the books you've written. So the only thing you have to worry about is writing a great book. And the system with enamel takes care of the rest. Thanks for listening to this conversation. I think you have a book on your bookshelf that is a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, uh, maybe I'm way out in left field, but I, I think that's, I see it just off to the right there. It's an it's a biography. Is it is it Dietrich Bonhoeffer though? It, it's it's a book about Bonhoeffer. It's a biography of okay, him perfect. by Eric. What's his name? Uh, Eric Metaxas. For for anybody who's just listening, I have eagle eyes. I mean, that is that that's that's back there. But I just saw it. And I recognized it. And um, the funny thing is, I don't know a ton about him. I know that he did attempt to assassinate Hitler. Um, and I, I know a few other details. So I'm actually not well studied on Bonhoeffer, but somehow that face is just very memorable. It is. You know, that's actually my wife's book. I don't think I've ever read that one. Okay. But you're the second person to comment on it in the past couple of weeks when I was doing a podcast, which is sort of fun. Well, let's go a little further down the rabbit hole. Right next to it, you have the same edition of The Lord of the Rings that I own. It's the one that my dad gave me when I was uh, like 12 years old and told me, good luck reading it because I had badgered and pestered and pestered him. And it took me well over a year to finish it, but I did finish it before I turned 13. Um, and it was my summer reading for many years, all the way through high school. I would pick it out and read it again. And it has always been a book that I adore. And that exact edition is just so perfect. That's awesome. You know, my, yeah. my story on Lord of the Rings is actually pretty funny. I, when I was a kid, and now this has been when I was like 16 years old, but when I was a kid, I, I started reading it and I made myself get through the first two books and I got into the third book and I finally realized this is never going to get any faster. And I <laughs> never right. finished, I never finished oh, the third book, which is sort of funny considering where I'm sitting right now, but yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, and, and there are different different uh, strokes for different folks, I guess is what they say. Or maybe that's like the 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 worst version of the saying. But um, yeah, it is not it's never it's never a fast paced story. But I think that he does a really great job with building tension and all of the storylines that are going. I remember still my very first time reading through it being like, get me back to the story about about uh, Frodo, because I need to know what's going on with his journey toward the mountain. And he'll take you away from it for such long stretches that you're like, I need to know. Um, and then as soon as you get back to Frodo, you're like, wait a sec, I need to get back to Aragorn. Come on, get me back to Aragorn. I love how right? he builds tension that way. Yeah, so. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's one of the things he and Brandon Sanderson both do that quite well. 
Yes. I have not read any of Sanderson's fantasy. He has a book uh, about a detective with a, a version of schizophrenia that, uh, without spoiling anything, isn't actually schizophrenia, but presents that way um, that I thought was really, really well done. Interesting. So I, I've I've read a fair bit of what Sanderson's done, and a lot of mm-hmm. his epic fantasy would remind you of The Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways, which... All, and it mm-hmm. also remind you of Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, that sort of thing. So yeah, he very interesting of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I know he did. I, I'm just saying that's why he was the one who got to do it, <laughs> right? So right, because he's so yeah. good at it. He's so good at yeah. channeling that voice. And um, I, I think a lot of times you have to have an unbelievably encyclopedic knowledge of a storyline to be entrusted to finish the unwritten story. And uh, I, like I said, have not read those, so I can only speak from uh, what I've heard other people say. But uh, he did a fantastic job of finishing the Wheel of Time from from everything I've heard. And I just can't imagine all of the information in his brain in order. To to accomplish something that challenging. So I got to ask, you've read, you've read the, the Lord of the Rings. You've, you obviously Mm -hmm. like fantasy enough to do that. What is it that you like to read nowadays? What, what's like your, almost your guilty pleasure or whatever it is you, you like to read. Okay. So one, I want to frame that by saying in my opinion, and this is just me, there's no such thing as guilty pleasures. Um, And the reason I say that is that my wife went on this journey. When I first married her, she had a small single bookshelf and uh, on it, she had like John Grisham uh, and the like. So that kind of stuff. I think that a lot of people label those sort of authors as guilty pleasures. My wife also grew up, uh, her mom read romances by the dozen. I mean, she would go and buy like remainder boxes of romances and just plow through them. And my wife didn't want to read romances because she always thought that her, her mom was like maybe intellectually inferior for choosing to read that kind of stuff. And we were almost, ah, I mean, eight years, nine years into our marriage when I looked at her and I was like, listen, why don't you just read one and see what you think? Maybe it's great. Maybe you're missing out. Um, And now she is a woman who reads 300 books a year. She's just absolutely a devourer of books like her mom was. She loves romances. She doesn't feel guilty about it. Um, And it, it changed everything for her. And I think in many ways, the romances she reads have informed the kind of life that she wants to live, which is not to say that I have a great, crazy sex life, because that's not what we're talking about. So so what you um, are saying is you like to read romances. I don't. I do not like to read romances <laughs> as a general rule. Um, I did just read Emily Henry's uh, Beach Read, and I thought that was a great book. I really enjoyed it. What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm going to tell you. It's the best way for us authors to make a living selling our books. Are you tired of hearing gurus tell you your book is only good enough to be a lead magnet for services? Are you tired of feeling like you have to be a slave to social media and then frustrated when the time you spend doesn't actually help you sell books? I was too, until I found Ammo. Ammo is the only program that reliably produces results and it works for anyone. Is it hard work? You bet. Do you have to overcome some of your own prejudices to make Ammo work for you? Absolutely. But rather than being another program that rah-rah shish-goombahs tries to get you emotionally excited only to offer unclear methods, Ammo shows you how to design profitable ads step-by-step through a unique, highly tested 
and targeted formula. The founder, Steve Piper, is a data-loving, formula-driven author who escaped the kingdom of Amazon to build a platform for himself, where he sold directly to his readers and built a loyal following and millions of copies sold. With Ammo, you know who's reading your books, how to contact them, and what they want to read next. If you've always been frustrated with Amazon's wall of mystery of not knowing who's reading your books and losing 50 to 70% of your hard-earned money that you're making through sales, Ammo solves all of those problems by putting you in the driver's seat and showing you how to fulfill your books directly to your readership. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. When I've sure. dipped into the romance genre, I've liked it. Uh, I read Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Um, but overall, uh, I stick to the eye test. This is the worst way to say this, but I, I would say it is by and large true that I will go to my local uh, Friends of Omaha Public Library book sale and I will browse the shelves and a spine will kind of look like something I might be interested in. I'll pull the book out and oftentimes I'll look at the cover. If it passes that test, I'll flip it over on the back. I'll see who blurbed it. Maybe somebody that I know blurbed it and that's interesting to me. Then I'll open up the dust jacket because I, I do like to read hardbacks if possible um, and I'll start to kind of get a feel for like, is this so something I want to take a risk on. It's nice because those books cost no more than $2 a piece. So you can really buy a lot of books at economy. Um, one thing I've been trying to do a lot more of is read self-published because I am at this time in my life, a self-published author. I don't have any plans to go traditional. <laughs> I think he's, he's, uh, he's giving a spot for his book right now <laughs> called Bright Star. Um, well, and yeah, so the reason I mean, I'm, like, the reason the I'm holding things. it up here is just to ask, what do you think of the cover? I like it at first. I mean, it looks like a professionally designed cover. So that's a big deal to me is if I'm looking at it, it passes the eye test for being professionally designed. I think if I saw that, I would pick it up and look at it because it's self-published okay. or is it self-published, right? Technically not. Or it's a and small actually press. there's a bit okay. of, well, it's a small press, but there's a story there and, and I'd love to actually yeah. tell it. Um, yeah. Let's get into it. Let's wait a second. Yeah, let's, sure, let's, sure. We're not in a rush. We got some time. Um, but yeah. So uh, going back to that idea of like, yeah, I go to the book sale and I kind of look at those things and I try to figure out what is a good fit for for like what I'm feeling visually. And then I read the book and I am notorious for finishing any book I start. So in recent years, I've started to move away from that a little bit, but I do try to finish everything because I believe that as much as there is a quote unquote guilty pleasure, there are also books that speak on different levels. Some books yeah. are massively challenging to get through, but stay with you for years and years. You um, and I are on the same page on that one for sure. Yeah. I, I try to, when I, when I start a book, I like to try to finish it and I'm not sure whether yeah. it's I'm not sure whether it's because I feel like I should or whether it's because I've had the same experience you have where it speaks to me on a different level sometimes yeah. or what it is exactly. But I feel like once I start a book, I I want to finish it. Not I have to finish it. That's almost yeah. a compulsive thing. I want to finish it once I start it. So yeah. for whatever reason, I have DNF'd a few, but only a few. The Lord of the Rings bear one of them. <laughs> and and that's the hilarious part, right? Because most of the time I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a book by a guy named John Eldridge. Most of the community listening won't know because it was uh, Christian in, in nature. Wild um, at heart? I, wild at heart. I did not finish it. And for probably 20 years, anybody would ask me and say, the only book I've ever DNF'd was Wild at Heart because it made me so angry. Like, 
his whole thesis was that a man was somebody who hunted and did very manly things. And I was like, screw that. I am not manly and I have not done a lot of manly things and I'm still a man. It's, it's totally fine. Um, I got really angry at that book, but yes, that, that I was proud that that was the only book I'd ever it's, DNF'd at this point more than that, but it, it's slightly hilarious. You should bring that up. I'm actually listening to it and on an auto audio book right now. And I'm kind of on the same page you are there in that yeah. I don't do a lot of things. Most people would consider manly, but I think his base point that, that there's something in all of us that yearns for something important to accomplish sure. some, some kind of an adventure to live, whether that's yes. a manly adventure, which he seems to think of, or whether it's yeah. like in what, in, in my case and in your case, we're writing books, we're publishing books, we're doing this thing that's considered by most people to be absolutely crazy. We've got yeah. this motivation to do it. This is an adventure, man. So yeah. I think I'm with him on, the, on that yeah. subject. It's a generous, I think it's a generous reading that you're experiencing right now, because I agree with you that adventure is is key. I would just say that that is not an actually a masculine trait. There are some things that are masculine. And um, it's really strange that we're going to dive into some of these topics right off the the, the top. But um, we are living in a culture right now that uh, is trying to blur the lines between gender and sex in ways that are, are deeply uncomfortable for me. Um, because I can say, if I can say anything... Uh, probably. One thing I can say for sure is that if there's been anything that's been central to me in my life, it has been this need to figure out, like, what are the things that make me unique? And part of that is my male yeah. body and the the things that that, that accomplishes. So sure. listeners probably know this to a degree, but my mom is a lesbian. My sister is a lesbian. I grew up surrounded by gay culture. Um, I had a, a dad who was part of the, the Southern Baptist Church. And so for anybody who doesn't know that, probably is one denomination of the Christian church that hates gays more than any other and is very outspoken about it. Wow, so man, that's I've unique. experienced like polar, yeah, exactly, polar opposites of this spectrum. Um, and it's given me an opportunity to say like, there is something deeply important about gender and sex. And we can't yeah. just say that you wake up one morning and decide what you are. Like there's something innate in your coding that is this. And and if I were going to say right now, the only thing I can't get canceled for is that as a male, I can do physical things that my wife cannot do. That is the one thing that separates me from being a, a woman is that I have so much testosterone that at any given moment I can do a pull-up, you know? I've, I've been so overweight for a long time and I can still do a pull-up and she has been in shape and exercising for a long time and cannot do a pull-up. It's testosterone yeah. and it's so important. Well, and, and, you know, there are other things too, I think, but you know, what's really hilarious is we're getting into yeah, these are. discussions right off the bat that are absolutely sort of core discussions about everything. And this is what I love. So it's sort yeah, of hilarious. This comes right up because my podcast with, that I do occasionally is um, it's called Modern Apocrypha. And what I explore on that podcast is what I consider to be truth that's sort of outside the Overton window, stuff that that will get you canceled because people yeah. don't like to talk about it. Yeah. I, I have an interesting feeling about it because, again, you have to, like, not you, I'm talking you and the, uh, sure. like, the royal you. But, yeah, yeah. like, you have to realize that I've seen both sides and I am – empathetic and sympathetic to both sides. And again, I'm traveling a little bit of area that listeners have heard before, but uh, on my honeymoon, we went to New York city. Mm -hmm. When we, when we dropped down at the airport and had to get, uh, 
I tried to be the quote unquote man and get us there. And I was so directionally lost that like we ended up getting off the subway in Harlem and walking around. And it was one of my first experiences of being surrounded by a primarily black culture. And I was uncomfortable. I didn't know Sure. what this was. And I had heard stories of Harlem and everything. And my wife stepped up and she's like, I get how to get there. And like she, for the rest of the time, navigated the subway systems, the streets, everything that we did with absolute aplomb. Like she understood where we were going, how to get there she has this like navigational Well, north star in her brain and you know and the joke, when we right? i, I maybe i don't know <laughs> The, the, the perennial joke, the guy always has to stop and ask for directions and he won't. right So it's like, exactly but it's it's so funny because one of the stereotypes is that men are supposed to be good at directions men are supposed to navigate by streets and and like north south east and west and women are supposed to navigate by landmarks we are flip-flopped i let navigate by landmarks she navigates by directions um Sure. she does our taxes she is an accountant i'm an artist when when we have a fight it's because she's not hearing my point of view and when we have a fight it's because she can't fix what's wrong with me like we are literally flip-flopped in So, all of the the quote unquote you know stereotypes so, so let me, let me ask you this because we're, we're actually touching on something that I have been really doing some soul searching about for a while. And there's yeah no, no better time than the present to ask one of the, one of the things that I've had on my heart to do is a book that actually explores some of what we're talking about in a way that, that is. that is actually respectful of reality and is not hardline taking some kind of agenda side on things and shoving it down people's throats, but actually just talking about this from the perspective of somebody who's experiencing difficulty in figuring out who they are. Because like you, Yeah. like you, I've had a heck of a time in my life with some of the same sorts of things. I have some of those masculine sort of markers that people would point to. I have a very forceful personality, but Mm -hmm. by the same token, my wife does the taxes. Like you Yeah. say, I, I am the one writing a book. So Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of mix in, in its different Right. proportions. Like we all have our different proportions. We're all different. We're Yeah. all made as individuals and we're all unique. And that's actually really important. And our modern culture, neither side actually gives that the justice that it's due. And the, the, what gets lost in this conversation, I think, is a sensitivity to the fact that, that yeah, we're all actually individuals and we all have our tendencies. And you can't just paint with a broad brush and say, everybody is this or everybody is that, or you should Right. always do this or that. If you feel a certain way, that is, we're individuals, man. We've got, Yep. yeah. So one of the things that I think is that there there was a time bygone when the, the differences really did boil down to physical capability. So if you want somebody out uh, behind a mule plowing a field, you want a man out who can drive 
down the plow and spend long hours in the sun and testosterone is going to help him fight back and combat the elements. When you went to war in the old days, you weren't doing a lot that was cerebral. You were lining up with uh, 200 yards between you and archers who had to pull back the bow against all of that tensure and tension and shoot as far as they could. And men who are going to run as hard as they could at each other with shields and spears and swords and their physical bodies were going to determine whether you you lived or died. You're going to put men in those situations because those are where you boil down to the actual physical capability. We are entering and have like actually not even entering. We've long past the point in our uh, existence when most of war is cerebral. And then you start to ask the question like are men or women better at cerebral? Yes. Well, That's and yeah, it's yes. totally, it's, it's totally individual. Now there is another side right. to this that, that I've experienced and this is going to come a little closer to the Southern Baptist side of things that you expressed earlier, but goes something like this in my life. So, so backing up just a little bit to give context when I was, when I was a kid, I remember telling my mom one time, I think I should have been a girl. Mm. So so I have had some experience with this whole, I don't know exactly who and what I should be. And I felt like that for a lot of my growing up. But as an adult, as a grown man, I find that the more that I act toward being what being what the man of the family needs to be for the family to function, the more I act into that role, the happier and healthier I am and my family is. So there is still something that was created in us that actually benefits from the, how do I even put that into words, man? It's, it's not, it's not from that broad brush stroke. It, it benefits from acting into the roles we were designed for in a meaningful way. And that doesn't mean that we're all cookie cutters. We're all very different. We're all very unique individuals, but, but there is still some, some value there. And that tension is difficult. I'm four books into a nine book series and every single day lately, I find myself thinking, boy, it would be great if I had some central location for all of my notes, all of my plot points, character names, family lineages, you name it. I wish it was in one place because let's be honest, the way that I am using Microsoft Word as a word processor and have 55 different documents to keep track of all of the series details that I need to access, I'm taking more time opening up files wondering, why did I name this one that? Why did I name this one that? And not getting the information I need. Enter Scrivener. You guys know that I do not advertise for things unless A, I'm using them myself, and B, I think that you could up your game, sell more books, do better marketing, and get yourself in the game better. And that is why I am now partnered with Scrivener. If you use the link in the show notes, you get a 30-day free trial, and then you can sign up as well for a discount. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. I, I, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. And I also believe 
that like you just said some terms that I think come with a lot more baggage than I'd be necessarily comfortable treading in, which is like a man should be. I don't know if the, I feel that there's a should be. I know that there, again, going back to the one differentiation we know, if something heavy needs to be lifted, I can do it longer than my wife. She's going to the gym every single day. She's lifting weights. She's gaining Sure. muscle. I, at this point, am walking the dog once and maybe going for a second walk in the evening. I'm not prioritizing any kind of like physical fitness at that level. Um, and I, she'll just never close the gap. She's never going to close the gap. It's, Testosterone it's, made me taller. Testosterone it's the physical packed on difference. more muscle. Testosterone thickened my bones. Testosterone made my bones harder. Right. Every element of me is stronger to do those things. Um, but you know, she's, she's working an accounting job right now, and this is more recent, but she's working accounting. She's bringing in money. I'm staying home. I'm making money, uh, at book sales, some on the podcast, different areas like that. But like, when you talk about being the financial provider, she's the financial provider right now. Uh, we flip flop those I've, roles three different times in our, our marriage. And I've had a similar so experience, like, <laughs> not, not and that also many times, even, but yeah. yeah. Even setting the tone for our family, I would say more often than not, I am more comfortable supporting what she's trying to do with our kids. And that doesn't bring me any stress. So a lot of times she'll say, hey, Pop, can you take care of this for me? And I'll be like, yes. And I go scare the shit out of the kids. You know, Right. like Well, there sometimes is something she about, wants that. right, right. Well, Right. But like for the most part, like I do exist in a world where like I... try to shape my children as best as I can. But if you talked about a guiding vision for the family, it's probably hers because she seems to feel strong about it. And I don't feel as strong about it. Like I'm more curious. And you would historically say, I am Interesting. abdicating my kingly responsibility or something. And I don't And there, see it there that are way plenty because, of people who would still say that, but, but I'm with you on this. I understand right. where you're coming Yeah. from. And, and what I would say in response to that is basically just that, as we said earlier, each of us are individuals and each relationship is, it's going to come out differently, man. It's because Very. we're all, you know, I think, Yeah. I think the way I would put it is, God made us to be very unique individuals and he, he understands that. And that means he made provision for that and the way we're to live our lives. Yeah. You, you can't. So where I, Yeah. where I would circle back is going all the way back to your reading of, of uh, Wild at Heart. What I think is true is that my family functions best. I am healthiest. I am most in myself when I am pursuing that dream, that desire that I have. And that, I think, actually guides my family as much, if not more than everything else. So when I I absolutely am 100% agree. bought into the dream, then I think it strangely just takes care of a lot of the other issues. With that in mind, um, I do want to start to shift the conversation Sure. into the marketing aspect of, of books and what we're doing. Um, talk to me a little bit about Uh, give me a quick breakdown of how your book came to be. You said it was an interesting story where it was published, Okay. all of that. So bring me up to date and then we'll talk about specific marketing strategies. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, and, and as we do that, I can use your advice because I'm, I'm still flailing. Um, Yeah. so basically it goes something like this. I started writing when I was about 12, I wrote Yeah. a 256,000 word book Whoa. before I was 16 years old and I read th through it and I went, this is totally unpublishable. It is not worth the paper it's written on, but it was the most valuable time I spent writing because it taught Of me course. how to write. 
And then, so then I did some poetry and I, I kind of put down novel writing for a while. When I was first married, when I was in my early twenties, I tried writing fiction again. And I had this expectation and vision that it would provide for my family, my, my wife and I, and our then firstborn incoming. And it didn't end up happening. And that kind of crushed me. And it, it led me to put it down for gosh, 15 years. Yeah. I, I didn't write for 15 years. I tried working on a video game. I tried doing some other stuff, didn't work out. And then a couple of years ago, I was in a really bad place mentally and emotionally. And um, I, I kind of reconnected with God and I, I got the nudge. It's time to start again. So I started writing again. And that book, that original 200,000 word book that I wrote was originally supposed to be a prologue. And the prologue mm-hmm. that it was, was to this book. Okay. So then I wrote the book. Um, and the whole time I was writing the book, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do for publishing. I have no contacts. I have no knowledge. I have nothing. I've done nothing. I just, I know that I want to write this and that it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking God, give me, you know, whatever it is, if, if there's something that that's appropriate for publishing this, show me what to do. I get done with the book and I asked two people on social media for their help. I asked one to be a beta reader. And I asked Mm -hmm. another, when I finish this book, would you like read it? And if you like it, share it with your audience. He's like, yeah, I think I can do that. By the way, do you know my uncle's a publisher? Right. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, no, I didn't know that. Thank you. (laughs) And so I ended up applying to one publisher. It was his uncle's nice. publishing house. It's called Morgan James Publishing. They're, um, they've got offices in all of the major cities. They're technically a traditional publisher, but they're a smaller one. They do about 200 books a year. I sent the book in, applied, and was immediately accepted for publication, mm-hmm. which is totally weird. I mean, I don't know, but but the downside of this is because they're a small press, I'm still basically on my own for marketing. Of course. Yeah. And actually, it doesn't really matter the size of the press. Um, you know, people get published with Penguin, Penguin Random House or, or FSG, and they think that that those publishers are going to do the marketing. It's not true. You'll get better distribution to a degree if you're with a larger publisher. But by and large, you're on your own unless your your name is already a household name. That's the condition of publishing yeah. right now. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, so kind of the same applies for everybody. So you get you get the deal with the small publisher. Can you talk specifics a little bit? Like what was the print run on the first the first publication? Do you know? Well, it doesn't hit bookstore shelves till April 16th. So it's technically gotcha. not okay. it's technically not out yet. And I don't know what their okay. print run is on it. I'm not gotcha. sure. Gotcha. Okay. And do you know, like, do they have contracts with bookstores or like any kind of thing they, like that? They do have, I don't know about contracts. I don't know about um specifics, but I know that they consider bookstores to be their primary customers. And those are the brick and mortar bookstores are the people that they sell to. And because of that, I was able to get it published in under a year after I was accepted. So less than a year after we signed a contract, it'll be on shelves, which is pretty fast in the publishing world, as I understand it. Absolutely. What was uh, what was the editing process like when they accepted the book? Did they have an in-house editor that went through and started to edit it with you, or uh, uh, how did that process go? I I own the copyright to the book, to the work, okay. and as part of that, one of my responsibilities in the contract was to contract with a professional editor to 
okay. go ahead and go through it. And so they had some suggestions that they made and I looked through some of their suggestions and I picked one that I liked and got in touch with them and it seemed to work out okay at first and then mm -hmm. had some rough spots, but in the end they did a really good job. I was very pleased with what they helped me come up with. And I have some background in journalism, so I'm not no stranger to the editing process and what that requires. I know that's a shock to some authors, but it was kind of par for the course for me. So. Okay. So when you say like they had some suggestions, what, what does that look like? Like, did they take your manuscript and give you back edits on like how they wanted to shape the story was, did you do separate rounds for like uh, developmental editing, content editing, proofreading, any things like that. Like, yes, look, there were basically, basically it was, it was essentially two separate rounds though. We went through the beginning of the book uh, an extra couple of times because the first three chapters needed extra help. So there was some developmental mm -hmm. editing on the beginning of the book. Um, my editor there helped me to make the book more digestible for people because I had a hard time getting through the first couple of chapters but after that, it was one one main go through for content and uh, development and whatever. And really, I'm kind of unusual in that the editor told me, she said, I never tell people this. I don't know that I ever have told somebody this, but you don't write enough. I need more description in here. I need more. Mm -hmm. I need more substance in this. So, yeah, I don't know. Either way, though, they. Uh, then the uh, primary editor in the company did the proofread on it. And she came back to me and she said, the girls and I all think that your work is really clean and easy to edit. So we really appreciated it. Um, mm. So I, I don't even know what to say exactly, except that it, it sort of fit my expectations as far as what editing would do. And mm -hmm. I came up with something I thought was pretty pretty good. It, it was better than it would have been. And I plan on yeah. doing the same thing with the second one. Okay. So you have a series in the, in development. Well, actually I sent 110,000 words into the publisher and they said, you know, for young adult fiction, we really prefer not to publish over about 90,000. What can you do right. with that? And I said, well, I wrote this episodically. I need to rework the story arc on the main character, but we can basically just cut it in half. So the final mm -hmm. version of this book was, 55,000 words or something oh, wow. by the okay. time we finished with it because it's young adult and that's what they decided they think the market would do. And I have the second half of it. I'm almost done going back through it and re-editing it and I'm working on the third. So yeah, it's going to be a series. There are going to be at least four or five in this first. It's interesting to me that this comes up over and over again. It's one of the things that I like about the way that publishing is shaking out now is that like you hear comments like that a lot that uh, uh you know the young adult market doesn't want more than 90,000 words. I just don't see that being true. Um I mean Harry Potter is a good example yeah. of of a book. It started out shorter um and unquestionably the sorcerer's stone aka the philosopher's stone is the weakest yep. entry in the entire series it's also the shortest book in the series she spends the next two books kind of writing at the same level um and her stories get more interesting and better as she allows herself to write longer um, yeah. you could say that that's partly a writer's chops and like somebody just learning how to deal with bigger stories but this idea that like the market is asking for something i think is a big steaming 
fucking pile of crap. I don't believe it to be true. I think that publishers don't want to spend more money on paper on an unproven author. Um, so before I think I you've completely got something. I think like, I think you're on some, onto something there. I think I agree to a degree. yeah, before I dive into that philosophy though, talk to me a little bit about the, the, the publishing contract. So Um, Sure. they're going to do a print run for you. You're not paying for any of the actual printing of the book. Like the publisher is going to do a print run and they're actually going to pay for the printing, whether you sell out or not. Is that true? Yes. And they're actually responsible for now. It isn't quite that simple. Part of my contract was that I agree over the lifetime of the book to buy 2000 copies and Hmm. try to sell them. Now they're, they don't push that clause apparently, but the idea is that through my own means, I will sell cop. I will sell up to 2000 copies, but that um, through their own resources, they will deal with the bookstores and I get a, I get a traditional royalty from whatever they sell. And that was a Okay. specific percentage. So. Gotcha. So you didn't, you had to pay for your editor, which is a really strange and, and very uncommon way to work with a traditional publisher. What other things did you have to pay for up to, uh, like out, out of this process? Uh, some amount of down payment on the books that I will buy from them over the long run. Not a full, not Okay. a full price on the 2000, but some, you know, some down payment on that, but that's it. Okay. And, and the editing, the reason for that was just that they do not own the copyright to any of the books that they publish. They leave those copyrights with their authors. And because of that, they did not want to have to deal with the headache of going back and forth with the authors about the content past a certain level. Once they trust that they have a reasonable author on, you know, on the hook, they're willing to trust that to editors and the author and, they don't want to have to mess with it. So It's an interesting model. It's a it is. interesting, it's different. It's different than other models that I've come across in the past. Um, Yeah. there are certain elements of it that, that strike me as being, um, like pay to play. And there are other elements of it that strike me as being like a, a, you know, more of a traditional small press. It certainly doesn't live in the world of like your traditional small presses. It also doesn't Right. live in the world of vanity press. It's somewhere in So between. It is a the little guy bit closer who... to vanity press. The guy who started the company is uh, one of the guys who co-authored a book called Guerrilla Marketing for, for Writers. And Okay. so his mindset is an entrepreneurial mindset. And that sort of goes into the, the model that they do for their writers. So you're right in that there are some elements there of vanity press, but the, the ethos of the company is more an entrepreneurial ethos than it is anything else. And so I, I, I was honestly, I was a little ambivalent at first about some of those terms, but I thought it through, I, I did my due diligence and it turns out they're pretty reputable. They, they Yeah. stick to their terms and they try to do right by their authors. And, you know, when it comes to things like backlists, um, they support you all the way down the line. When I talked to one of the guys last time, he was saying, yeah, our current best-selling author, she's up to like 300,000 copies, but it took her seven years for her stuff to actually start selling in any quantity, which as I understand it is fairly reasonable. You know, it's like, that's a kind of a par for the course thing, unless you find another way or, 
you know, you get that lightning in the bottle thing or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of different ways. I, I, I try as hard as I can with this podcast to, to, to make sure that anybody listening understands there is no set uh, in stone path to this journey. More often than not, you need to work a whole lot harder than you expect in order to get your book out into the world. Um, yep. I've had I've had authors like Libby Grant, who she's been a, a lifetime traditional published author. Uh, she has multiple pseudonyms because she can write so prolifically that she can publish three or four books a year. Um, and all she does is is sit down and write for four hours in the morning, and then uh, she goes out to the beach, which is very close to her house, and sits down in a chair and smokes pot and watches the waves roll in, and like that is her life. And I am so happy for her. That sounds amazing. That your only thing is writing, and your publishers take care of all the marketing for you. She's doing a great job. Um, I've had other authors who are working really hard on self-publishing and can't seem to sell a hundred copies in a year. And, you know, like every, every route that we take is a possible route that authors have. What I would right. say is that no matter who you are, no matter how good the story is, getting eyeballs on it is your responsibility. Um, and that is where the major challenge comes in. Absolutely. And that's what I'm discovering is just how tough that can be. You know, I've got, Yeah, <laughs> I'm just getting into the marketing side of this in a real way. And it's not, True. it's not easy, man. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the marketing efforts that you're, you're doing right now. So you and I met, and I'll be completely transparent about this. You and I met because I'm sending out messages on Twitter for my audiobook, So you can get a free copy of my audiobook If you happen to be messaged by me, um, listen to it. Hopefully it's great. You love it. And then you decide to buy the other copies in the series, but I'm giving away a free lead magnet to get names on my email list. Um, yeah. What kind of things have you done to try to market your book? Well, oh, I'm sorry, getting my brain back into this. So a couple of weeks ago, I started doing a little renovation on the house here to build a little sound studio in the other end of the basement. And my brain is kind of out of the marketing groove for the moment, partly because the book doesn't drop till April 16th. But most of my efforts thus far have been things like getting on podcasts, getting in front of reviewers, getting, you know, trying to get the book to places where the the efforts of other people multiply my efforts in terms of getting it in front of people. That's where the bulk of my time has been spent so far. Um, but I have also done some uh, some local events, things like that, which end up being what kind of local events. Uh, so everything from the library to convention stuff to um, oh, what it was the other one. There was one other thing, but but just local gatherings where people show up and I can set up a table and maybe sell a couple of books. And so you're paying like a table fee to go. Do you have a setup? Talk, talk like anything you can, the more granular you get, the more okay, helpful so it is. So for, for conventions, table, for conventions, yes, you end up paying a table fee, the same thing for things like craft fairs and such. And you kind of have to watch your table fee on stuff like that because it'll overwhelm your profits if you're in the wrong place, obviously. Um, but the local library, when they do their, meet and greet for authors thing. It's just come set up a table, sell your books here. We don't, you don't have to pay mm -hmm. anything. This is just an event for anybody who wants Do to you come. have like pre-run copies then. Cause you were saying it doesn't come out to the 16th. So if you're I doing those events, do, like actually, books then? Okay. I have, I was able to order, I ordered 500 copies right off the bat when. Gotcha. And the reason that I've been able to get them in the bookstores haven't is that basically 
they need that much time for their sales team to to get the bookstores interested in the book, et cetera, and to get it onto mm-hmm. shelves. And for me, they say the more interest you can drum up, the better, because that just helps us in our efforts. So yeah, there's no reason you can't get copies as early as possible. So when you're going to an event, like how do you pick an event that you're going to go to? Um, okay, so basically my my calculus goes something like this. What is the total base cost to me to do this? Because obviously I've got my time, but I'm expecting to put a whole bunch of time into this basically for free for a, you know, a significant amount of time just as I build up some kind of name. But when it comes to the rest, how much is it going to cost me to drive there? Am I going to have to get accommodations for the night? What's the set? Of, what you know? What kind of fee do I have to pay for table, et cetera? Stuff like that. What how are what is you, like? Hold tight for a sec. How are you finding the event? It's like, is there a website you go to? Uh, what are you typing in the internet browser? The the again, the more yeah. granular you can get, the sure. more helpful. Okay, it is so to people who aren't doing this yet, get into any search engine and type in book fair with your town name in it. And it'll bring up something that's not too far away. And then what I discovered after that is if you type in fairs with your town name or your state name or whatever, you get as close as you can. It'll give you, there there are places that have lists of all of the local events that people are setting up because they want to list themselves. And if you go through those lists, you just have to, you just have to do the work to go through all of the search terms you can think of that are appropriate for whatever material you're writing. In my case, Mm. science fiction, science fiction convention, science fiction fair, science fiction, you know, whatever kind of gathering, science fiction con, games Mm. con, anything like that. You you start going through the list and as you do it, you, you have to make some kind of value judgment on what is going to be worth the time that you're putting in and the money you're putting in to get to the event, to get the books, whatever. If it's primarily set up for authors, you're probably not going to make a whole lot because it's more networking than it is for consumers. But if it's like a a science fiction convention, then you're going to have a lot more people who are interested in new science fiction stuff and people who can afford to go to conventions can usually afford to pick up a book or something. So depending on the table cost, you might actually be able to get somewhere. That's a fairly standard thing. Um, Yeah. One one of the other things I've been looking into that I know a lot of people who are longtime writers have pursued is getting in anthologies. If you can write short stories and get them in anthologies, you can get people's eyes on your work. You're probably not going to make a lot from the anthology itself, but people who read anthologies often discover new authors there. And if you put a good story in an anthology, that's one way to get in front of people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the guys who are authors who are at these conventions, that's how a a large number of them have gotten into that space. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm seriously looking at but haven't had time to pursue yet is some direct marketing stuff where you have a system of you go through, and I'm not terribly familiar with this yet, but there are diff- a number of people who are selling their knowledge of these systems uh, you know, for a thousand bucks or whatever. You buy yeah. their idea of how you put together a set of ads, you do iterative ad creation and testing. So you, you make over the course of a period, like 30, 40 ads, you put them for a test run out on Facebook or on whatever platform and 
the ones that perform really well, then you spend some money to actually, you know, get some, get some readership that way. And I understand that's usually better if you have multiple books to sell that you might be able to get some traction that way. Um, And the guy who was putting together the one system I was looking at, basically he said he went through the whole process to become an Amazon best-selling author and he lost money on the deal because he ended up spending more on the advertising than he made on the sales. And he didn't Mm want to, he didn't want to be doing that anymore. He wanted to be writing and making actual money on his books. And so because he was a marketing guy, he came up with this solution and some of his results seem promising. So, you know, something to look into and the the general method seems you're on the the TRBM podcast, but I'm partnered with a guy named Steve Piper. He has the Ammo program. Um, okay, he's the one I was talking about. I figured he was. So actually, you're on the Ammo podcast right now. You just didn't know it because of the way that we do, <laughs> do things. Steve is Steve is my uh, friend, and he and I have been working together on this podcast for a little while. Um, he's the real deal, That's and awesome. there are so so many out there that are not. I actually just spent yeah. ten thousand dollars on a program uh, that was supposed to kind of like dive deeper into this whole area and talk about like, you know, how you can, how you can absolutely dial in to your niche and your market and you get in and you find like, it's literally the same stuff that people charge a thousand dollars for that. This guy just charged $10,000 for. Thankfully, um, I am pretty, I'm pretty dogged about asking for refunds. I even told Steve when I signed up for his program uh, a little over a year ago that if he didn't perform, I was going to ask for my refund. I was like, I am so tired of programs. I've done Russell Brunson, Funnel Hackers. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done just over and over and over a ton of programs. I've spent, I have actually spent tens of thousands of dollars on different programs. So you you would say ammo works then? Ammo absolutely works. Sweet. Yeah, if you don't understand. That's what I was looking at. Interesting. If you don't understand how to set up your system, uh, you want to go with with Steve. Okay, so so here's one question. One question. Yeah, go ahead. If I have just one book, is this still something mm-hmm. I can see some benefit from? Of course. Yeah. You have to you have to start thinking outside of the box. So the first question you ask when you join Ammo is, do I know for sure that my book is good enough that anybody who reads it has a fair chance of liking it? The reason I ask that is because there are a massive number of people out there who self-publish because it's easy. And so if they only have yeah. one book, there are very few chances that it's going to be good enough for everybody to like it. You have to have written a lot of words and a lot of books to know that it's going to be good. The reason more than anything else that Steve recommends that you have multiple books is because once you have multiple books and you have some kind of history, you start to understand my book is good enough that readers will like it. If you know for sure that people are going to like your book, you can be profitable on a one book funnel. Now, I'm not talking to every person who's listening right now because everybody will always be like, yeah, for sure, my book's good enough. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky question to ask. But if you see a one-for-one sale, yeah, if you see a one-for-one sale and people leave reviews and they're like, I love this book. This book is what I've been looking for. I can't wait to see the author uh, publish their next book. Yes, it's fine. Um, the reason I can say that with such confidence, it, and, and I'll, I'll go to like the biggest author in our space, but if you look at Stephen King, how many series has he written? Not many. He wrote the Dark Tower series of seven books. Uh, he's written two books now in the uh, Doctor Sleep and, shoot, I can't even remember the first one, The Shining. The Shining yeah. and Doctor Sleep. Um, and then he's written the Detective series uh, with Holly Gibney. Other than that, he doesn't write series. So... 
you know, he's not going to fit into that world of like selling more books in a series. He's always going to be selling a one-off. If you write a great book, people will love it. And a one book offer will be profitable for you. And the sure. other thing that I would say is if you join the ammo program, you have to absolutely understand that there are multiple ways in which you make sales and you have to sell out on doing it. So the reason that I'm messaging you right now in Twitter is because every time I can get a tweet to get multiple retweets, every time that I can get somebody to join my email list, every time I can get people to talk about my book anywhere, it improves the everything. All right. A hundred percent. It, it's on a rising tide. It's so an it's, ecosystem it's like, of it's an, it's ecosystem, an ecosystem of yes of content and um, contact creation that you create and you draw people into it. Calling all self-published authors. If you live in the United States and you've always wanted to see your books in bookstores, this may be the most important ad you'll hear in 2023. Listen carefully. No matter where you are in your publishing journey, it's not too early to position yourself to pursue brick-and-mortar bookstore distribution. But if you're a self-published author, you've probably heard, getting your books in stores is next to impossible. That's no longer the case. For just $5, you'll receive a lifetime membership to the Self-Published Author Co-op. When you join, you'll have access to a members-only community with a detailed roadmap on how to get your books ready for bookstore distribution. Joining our community does not guarantee bookstore distribution, as there's a limited availability each month to be a featured author. And that's why the cost of a lifetime membership is less than a cup of coffee. Whether you're just about to publish your first book, or you're selling thousands of copies a month, if you don't have your books in bookstores, the Self-Published Author Co-op is the easiest, most efficient way to get national distribution of your books. Click the link in the show notes to join now. I yes. was I was working so, on something along those lines before I ever heard of ammo and yeah. now I'm I'm I need I don't want to have to do the work myself to figure out how to do this. I have a technical right. enough mind and enough experience with marketing that I could figure it out, but it looks to me like $1000 is like if I'm paying somebody 20 bucks an hour, that's nothing. It's like 50 hours. It's like I can't spend 50 there's, hours and come yeah. up with what he's selling. So there's no, there's no course that's actually vetted and better. I had done Russell Brunson's uh, funnel hackers, which I have nothing but respect for Russell. I believe that everything Russell's teaching you how to do on the back end is great, but nobody teaches you how to make ads. Steve does. Steve will actually literally step-by-step step teach you how to make ads. If your book is any good, you will sell your book. You may not be profitable on a single book um, if you are the average marketer on ammo. But let's talk about like uh, people that I've interviewed in the past. We've got a graphic novelist who's been on this, mm -hmm. this program. He has one graphic novel that he's selling right now through Facebook, and he's making plenty of money. Um, You've got like, uh, like me, I actually started the program out with one published book. I decided that I wanted to sell a pre-sale. So I was doing the nine lives of Marvin Longhai. And then when you bought that book, you also got the ebook for the eight ball magic of Susie Q and the 24 seven of a Russian named Ruskoff. Those are books I hadn't written at the time. Um, and I went out and I sold a three book deal for nine ninety nine. Things have changed a lot. So your price points have changed, but just you know, track with me yeah. when I was doing ammo at first, that was my three book offer. I was profitable for a long time. Um, and then I will also tell you that with yeah. ammo, you go through phases where you're profitable. I haven't been profitable since November. 
I can't figure out what changed, but something changed in Facebook's algorithm and the way that they're doing ads. Um, and so I marketed at a loss through November, December, January. And right at the end of January, I decided I needed uh, a little break. I'm kind of punch drunk. And so I pulled back um, and I've been kind of reassessing, but I just launched an ad earlier this week. And so far it's wildly profitable. So Gotcha. You know, you you go through you go through phases. Sure. It is a huge That's challenge, digital marketing. but I've never met anything. Yeah, I've never met anything quite like Ammo. Steve is Okay. the real deal, and he's a good guy. He's like a, a super great guy. So, Awesome. Well, I stepping I yeah, I'm stepping I away had from like the advertising portion of this podcast. I had well, I had um, planned I had planned to to you know, dig into that, but thank you. I uh, that actually Yeah, is you bet. quite the recommendation. Thank you, Jody. I I appreciate it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So um, some things that I have been doing recently that are effective and they're they're more one-to-one -one is actually you talked about doing the um, conventions, expos, book fairs. Yeah. I personally stay away from book fairs because I think that it's challenging to be one of many. Um, I like the model where you are uh, a, a unique booth. So I go to Yeah. Comic-Cons. Um, David and Lydia Scherer, who are part of the Ammo program, are the ones who taught me how to do Comic-Cons, and they are really effective. Um, I go to craft fairs. Local craft fairs are crazy good for selling if you can get into them and find them
when I talk to people about this, the big thing that gets me going and, and the reason that I write goes something like this. It looks to me like our whole society is in a, a it's a mess. We've got, we've got a disaster going on. I think everybody kind of sees it. I think most people agree, but nobody really knows what to do about it. And the thing that, that I think is that our story is broken, that over time we have lost sort of the guiding light that, that showed the way for our society. So as an illustration, when I started a Twitter account for the Energemetrist 6 universe, um, I ran into a tweet and the guy says, some guys choose one book and make it their whole personality. For me, it's Starship Troopers. Mm. And I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's a little funny, but at the same time, it's also kind of indicative. It points to something, mm-hmm. you know, Andrew Breitbart said, started saying a number of years back that politics is downstream of culture. And I think the way I like to put it is politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream of faith or ideology, depending on how you want to put it. So the idea being here that the things that we care about, that we live out of, determine the culture around us sort of collectively, right? So the things we care about determine how we live. That defines the culture. And the culture sort of sets the it sort of sets the bounds for politics. It determines the the field that politics can be played on. And mm-hmm. the story that we sort of collectively as a culture look to sort of determines or or guides that culture myth lives between faith and culture. It points back to the faith or the ideology we stand on, and it points forward to lead the way for the culture. So the idea is that the stories that we read actually have a tremendous impact on how we as people live our lives. Mm. Yes. That's sort of, that's sort of my, as an author, that's sort of what, what engaged me in storytelling and, and, you know, as an author, I, I tell people, and I'm sure you can relate to this, I try to tell an entertaining story to put a little more, a bit of myself into the characters to draw people in and make them relatable. And I also try to, to take some, you know, it's like great art or stories that, that stick with people like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. or, you know, any of the things that become timeless, Star Wars, whatever it is they take something from out there that's true and they just gather it in and leave it in front of people for them to sort, they concentrate it for people to experience. It's not preaching. It's just sort of gathering some truth out of the world and making it available to the readers. And I aspire to do that. I aspire to it. I don't claim that I, that I have any kind of special ability you know that's sort of something that you work Mm. hard at and maybe you succeed and maybe you don't but that's what i try to do and i try really hard not to preach that's something people get plenty of especially from mainstream entertainment preaching this or that message and just making life miserable people don't even want to see it it is one one interesting component of what you're saying is is that um like we were just watching the first episode of echo last night uh my wife and i Mm -hmm. and I looked over at her and I was like, man, there is like literally zero shows right now that aren't trying as hard as they can to like preach the the like modern spin on feminism. Um, there is no male character in that show that is 
estimable in any way. Um, and then there's The woke uh, a agenda. show that we just finished that I loved, something Mm hmm. that I loved, but also that was noticeable was Fargo, season five of Fargo. I loved the Okay. show, but again, there was no male character in that show that was estimable. And, and people who would argue with me would be like, well, the, the main character's husband was a really nice guy. Sure, he was nice, but he was like a, you know, completely... Yeah. You know, he he couldn't accomplish anything. He couldn't do anything. Um, and then the other character who was kind of okay got shot in the last episode and killed. Like, so you have two male characters in the show and they're completely incompetent at anything and die. Um, everything that is mainstream right now, nothing is going to show estimable men. And and then, you know, I, I've had conversations with a lot of people who talk about the pendulum and they're like, well, the pendulum swings. And so we need to make sure that to equalize things like women take the front and center. And, and I'm like, no, in order to get where we're going, we have to go where we're going. You can't get to Chicago from Omaha by going as far north as you can and then going as far south as you can. You will never get to Chicago. You literally have to go east. <laughs> I, I like You that just analogy. have to go east. I, I really like that analogy. That's very well said. I agree a hundred percent. We need to be, we need to be putting out there what we're aiming at. And one of the things Yes. that, one of the things that I actually find really interesting, um, there was, <laughs> I don't know if you know what not the bee is. Do you know what not the bee is? I don't think so. Okay. You know, the Babylon bee, the satire I do know site the Babylon online, B, yes. not Mm the -hmm. bee is their news arm. And they've some, Oh, they've okay. started, they've started releasing these um, op-eds basically. Mm hmm And I read one of them the other day and he was saying, you know, I think the destruction of star Wars was on purpose. I think it was that it was actually an important show and it's because it points back to the monomyth. And I am, I am assuming Ah. Uh. here that a bunch of your audience are Yeah, writers, yeah, yeah. right? Joseph Okay. Campbell, So, yeah. right. So the, the, the monomyth, is just the idea that there is this, this sort of singular story that humans seem to be drawn to disproportionately. And I can tell Yeah. you why I think that is, but that's just a fact. There is this. And Star Wars very heavily drew on that. George Lucas Mm-hmm. actually said that was what he was trying to do. And Mm-hmm. then the woke agenda came in and just totally trashed it. And We don't have a great example right now of the monomyth in popular culture, except for older things like Lord of the Rings, where you actually Yeah. see some some iteration of that. Yeah. And and so I think that I, I think we need yeah. some of that. I think that that I think because we do have it, though. I don't think that we have a lot of people who are rising to the surface who are that. And I also think that culture is fighting really, really hard to uh, to to suppress it. So I think you're seeing a lot of people who are dealing with it, trying to suppress it. Uh, um, and yeah, I, I see that as being a, a major reason why we're not seeing a ton of it. bummed though because there are things that i really love out there that i think are doing a good job bringing awareness going all the way back to the beginning of our show um i grew up with a um a lesbian mother and a lesbian sister i grew up with a southern baptist father if there's anybody who has an appreciation for the extremes in our culture i would i would argue Yeah. like i'm probably that guy and Sure. yet and yet
I'm really frustrated with where we are um, because I, I feel like we're abandoning the the reality that there is nuance to this conversation and that there are roles that we all fulfill. Um, when you try to say that like anybody can be anything um, if they just decide it, I think that you are taking away some of the most powerful elements of, of the world that we live in. I absolutely agree with you. No, no conflict on my part on that. You know, you're, you're yeah. speaking to, you're probably speaking to a more sort of left ish audience than I usually do. My podcast yeah, is called modern apocrypha because I speak to a primarily Christian audience in my own podcast. Yeah. But the fact is you're right. And I actually say the same thing. And I, I actually told somebody off on Twitter just last night for exactly that reason. We, yeah. We're we've lost so much and that story being destroyed is a huge portion of what we need in order to bring back some semblance of sanity, I think. Yeah. The good news is if you get far enough off the road, uh, then the world itself will destroy you. So like any empire that we've ever seen before <laughs> has like gone down a certain road and the empire gets destroyed and, and like the path is restored. So I guess if the United States falls into ruin because we've gotten like too accommodating of everybody as everything, uh, we'll reset. And and that's a weird note to end on. But for uh, everybody you know, who's listening, go ahead and tell them <laughs> where they can find you um, and uh, how to connect with you. Sure, absolutely. And let me give a teaser too. Um, so yep. my name is Jared Michaud. You can find me at jarednmichaud.com. You can find me at modernapocrypha.com for the podcast or e6universe.com is my fiction. The letter E, the number six universe.com is my fiction. Uh, you can basically find me at those places on X, formerly Twitter. Um, and, and what I would say in response to what you just uh, sort of gave me there, you gave me a great opening. I think that right now we're talking politics in Constantinople in, is it 1452? Because in 1451, uh, cannons were offered to the emperor, uh, the Byzantine emperor. In, and in 1453, the Ottomans invaded Constantinople using the cannons that he refused. So as a society, yeah. I think we're sitting in 1452 talking politics in Constantinople. I think that there's, that it's actually what you just said is actually already happening. And that's one of the things I talk about on modern apocrypha. So yeah, feels a little bit like that. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jared. Really enjoyed. Thank you for having you me on, that. man. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. You bet. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening? <laughs>